going to be Colossians chapter 2 today, and we're going to keep making our journey through the book of Colossians and keep trusting God for what he has for us in this short but very concentrated epistle. And boxing a counterpunch is a punch that immediately follows an attack launched by an opponent. Right, so if you've ever watched a, a, a boxing match, you, you see that, right? One fighter throws a punch, and then the other, the other fighter comes right back with another punch, a counterpunch, right? And you, you essentially see that fight play out through Scripture where God moves and then the devil moves. And, and there's this countering back and forth. Satan, as we know, had launched an attack against the church at Colossae. And what the Apostle Paul did under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost is he counterpunched by writing this inspired, preserved epistle of Colossians. That was his response to Satan's attack on the church at Colossae. And so Satan's attack is summed up for us, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, in verse 8 of Colossians chapter 2. That attack was essentially philosophy and vain deceit. That's how he was attacking the church at Colossae. And in that, we saw that those things were Jewish sophistry, and we talked about that. And then, vain deceit or empty delusion. And so Paul began counterpunching in chapter 1. And what you're going to see here in chapter 2 is he clearly landed a TKO. I mean, he didn't just counterpunch. He came back, and he is punching here in chapter 2 with tremendous force and power. And what you're going to see very clearly is he is landing shots that absolutely obliterated the enemy and his attacks. And there are some things in this that God would have us to glean and learn. Now, I want to set the stage for where we're going this morning with this principle, and it is critical. As a believer, you have to get this. I must get this. Listen, the principle of counterpunching is a key difference in spiritual warfare. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are in spiritual warfare day in and day out. You absolutely must learn how to counterpunch. You have to learn that. If you do not learn how to counterpunch, listen very carefully, you cannot and you are not winning in this war. You have no shot. If you do not learn the principle of counterpunching, the devil attacked Jesus and Jesus counterpunched, counterpunched with, it is written. It is written again, for it is said. That's how he counterpunched, or for it is written, sorry. Eve lost in the garden because of her inability to properly counterpunch. And, and her inability to properly counterpunch was the result of the fact that she was not established in the little word of God that she had. And so she did not properly counterpunch. Husbands, are you listening? 
Your wife is as much of a target of Satan today as Eve was in the garden. Make no mistake about it, your wife needs to know how to spiritually counterpunch. And it is on you and it is on me to make sure that we are providing the type of leadership where our wives learn how to do that. But if the devil is attacking without you knowing how to properly counterpoint, counterpunch, here's what that means. What that means is, is you are for sure living a defeated Christian life. That's what it means. If you do not know how to properly counterpunch, your Christian life is one of defeat. That would be the theme of your Christian life. The devil is knocking you around the ring of life whenever he feels like it. Whenever he wants to, he can have his way with you. He can knock you here. He can kick you there. He can throw you down here. He can defeat you here. Because of your inability to properly counterpunch. The attack against Colossae was of man and the world. It was not after Christ. And in verse 9, Paul began launching a series of counterpunches that were directly into the face of and the body of the enemy that was touting philosophy and vain deceit. And Paul was looking to knock it out. Look at verse 9. Paul said, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are, verse 10, complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So at the end of verse 8, it's, we close with, and not after Christ. So verse 9 is clearly referring to Christ. As most of us know, we do not find the word Trinity in our Bible. That, that is a word that is, is used to capture the triune nature of God as we know. What we do find in God's word is we do find the word Godhead. And it's very fitting, doctrinally, that you find that word Godhead three times in Scripture. And that's fitting because God is a holy trinity. That is who he is. He is the triune God. But according to philosophy and vain deceit of the Gnostics, Jesus could not have been God because God would have never put on flesh. And so what Paul did in verse 9, was he took an uppercut to that. I mean, he landed a blow. Because he said, in him, that is Christ, dwelleth not some, but all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That was a bomb, doctrinally. It obliterated the heresy of the Gnostics that said, Jesus Christ could not have been God in the flesh, and Paul took a bomb to it. Jesus told Philip, he that hath seen me has seen the Father. In chapter 1 of this great epistle, in verse 15, Paul made it clear that Christ is the image of the invisible God. I mean, Paul was tearing down these heretical towers that were attacking the deity of Christ so you need to know, even today, 
any teaching, any, any system that attacks the deity of Christ, you know what that is. You can, you can label it now. We can talk about Islam, we can talk about Mormonism, we can talk about the Jehovah Witnesses and their doctrine. At the end of the day, according to what we see here in the book of Colossians, you can say, you know what that is? That is nothing more than philosophy and vain deceit. That's what that is. I don't have to know all the tenets and particulars of that doctrinal system. All I need to know is this. If you're saying that Jesus Christ is not the image of the invisible God, if you're saying that he is not or he was not God in the flesh, I know what that is. And I reject it. And it is designed to spoil you. But in verse 10, Paul began outlining, I believe, seven critical truths for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ regarding our identity and our reality in Christ. And these are all mammoth. They're huge. You've got to get these. I got tongue-tied because I saw you guys. I'm thinking, mammoth sounds very close to Monmouth. They're from Monmouth, Illinois, and their friend Naomi, our sister in Christ, is visiting from Monmouth, Illinois. Okay, Monmouth is small. Mammoth is very large. Okay? How about that? But these seven truths, we'll call them seven truths for counterpunching. Right? In this war, in this battle, as you begin to learn how to counterpunch, what we're going to see today is the first punch you're going to throw, the first punch you're going to counter with, is right here in verse 10. And what a punch it is. It is a punch that you got to get, I got to get. Please hear me. I understand the war. I understand the battle that we are all in as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, you are, you were enrolled at the moment of salvation, you were enrolled in an intense spiritual war. You're in it. And you're either losing in it or you're winning. There is no in-between. You're either losing in this war or you're winning in this war. You're not treading ground. You're either going this way or you're going this way. One of those is your reality at this very moment and mine. But it is an intense war. I believe the most intense war in the history of mankind. As far as mankind is concerned. This is it. The devil, his forces, and their agenda are unrelenting. Unrelenting. Satan brings it often, and he brings it hard. He wants to defeat you. And because of the weakness of our flesh, there can be moments of discouragement. There can be moments of depression. And there can be moments of defeat, but for some, it's not moments of defeat, discouragement, and depression. It's not moments. For some, that has become a way of life. Those things actually capture the theme of their Christian life. 
discouragement, depression, and defeat. But it doesn't have to be that way. As a matter of fact, according to the word of God, to the believer in Jesus Christ, it should not be that way. But for that to be a reality, we have to reckon, we have to agree with God, we have to count these seven things as true, and then we start counterpunching every day with these things. We do. Out of the gate, this first one is so large that we're only going to look at it, and actually, it is so large we could look at it for weeks. I promise you, if discouragement, depression, and defeat, if that's your reality, I promise you with everything I have, this first truth that we're going to examine today has a great deal to do with why. I promise you. You're going to see that very clearly from the Word of God. If you're saying, man, each and every day Satan is throwing me around like a sack of potatoes, like a rag doll, it will be because this first truth that we're going to examine, here's what you're telling God. You're not saying it with your mouth. But what you're saying with your life, what you're telling God is, God, I do not agree with that. You can say whatever you want to say. I choose to reject that truth. I promise. Verse 10. And ye are complete in him. Which is the head of all principality and power Philosophy and vain deceit fall under the umbrella of Gnosticism. We see that now. Listen very carefully. I don't care how it comes across, whether it comes across in the form of religion or something else. Here's what you have to understand. This is the lie of Gnosticism. You ready? The lie of Gnosticism to you as a believer is that you are incomplete. You are incomplete. That's the lie. No, no, no. You cannot be complete in Christ alone. You are incomplete. You are missing some stuff. That's the lie. Turn back to verse 16. Or to chapter 1, verse 16. Colossians chapter 1. This is the lie that Satan is bringing through corrupt and false teachers. You are incomplete. You need our books. You need our principles. You need our philosophy. You need our vain deceit. That's how Satan brings it. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. I get it. Satan and his forces are some bad dudes. They're rough. They're intense. They're very powerful. More powerful than you and I will ever be in the flesh. 
However, don't miss this. They were created by the Jesus that saved you and indwells you. They're not greater than him. Christ is the head of all principality and power. Now, that truth means nothing if you're not in Christ. It's just words. But because we are in Christ, as it pertains to the battle, it means everything. It has to. If he is the head of all principality and power, and he is, and you and I are in him, then what does that mean as it pertains to this great war that we're in? It can only mean this. We've already won. We're victorious. Listen, please hear this. Hear this. There are no losers in Christ. There are no losers in Christ. Only winners, only overcomers. There are no losers in Christ. None. The obvious question right now, obviously, is if that's true, then why are some believers, why are so many believers, for that matter, living the defeated Christian life? Here's why. It is because of this first counterpunch truth. And I'm going to give it to you in the first person, and here's why. Because it's already happening right now, I promise you. It's already happening right now. You know what Satan is doing? He is trying to flood your mind with doubt. He is trying to counter what you're hearing right now. It can't be that simple. It's more complicated than that. No, 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 no. It, he doesn't understand. He hasn't studied enough. And we can go on and on and on. But in the first person, when you get this truth, you know what you do? You start punching back every time. You punch back. And you punch back, so you're moving around. I can get a little closer if you want, right? You punch back, right? You ready? Here it is. I am completely filled in Christ. That's the first truth that you counterpunch with. And I mean you bring it with everything you got. I am, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can say, I am completely filled in Christ because you absolutely are. This word complete here in Colossians 2.10, it means to make replete. You know what that means? Completely filled. That's the truth. If you're in Christ, that is your truth. This word complete here in Colossians 2.10, it is translated in our Bible as fulfilled 45 times. It is also translated as filled 17 times. It is translated as full 9 times. Translated as fulfilled 6 times. And filled 3 times. In Christ, you absolutely are completely filled. I didn't write that. I didn't preserve that. I didn't inspire it. God did, and he has given us that truth. 
So, if that's true, why are there so many believers living this defeated life? They have not accepted Colossians 2.10. They know it. But God, yeah, it, it, God, I love you, and I know you love me, but God, it's just, you just don't understand. It, it, Lord, it's it just, I, I, I just can't, I, I can't, I can't, I can't accept that. Listen, as a believer in Jesus Christ, everything and I do mean everything, that you could possibly need in a thousand lifetimes, you have in Christ. Everything. But the lie for sale that has been, will be, and is being purchased by many believers is that they are not completely filled in Christ. Now, I'm begging you. I am. I'm begging you. My heart is so full this morning, it is bursting, okay? I have been with God in all this, and, and, and I'm embracing the work of the Holy Spirit with all this in my life. So I feel like I'm sitting right here next to my brother. Like, I, I, Lord, the Lord is talking to me too. But this is the truth about mankind. Mankind will go to the ends of the earth in pursuit of fulfillment. Mankind will do anything, try anything, go anywhere, you name it, in pursuit of getting fulfilled, including believers. This is why there are some believers who have five credit cards that are all nearly maxed out. Why? Because with every swipe, they're going for what? Fulfillment. It makes me feel good every time I swipe this. I want to buy this thing. I want to acquire this thing so that it will touch something inside that I'm longing for. I need more stuff. This is why some eat and drink in excess. They want fulfillment. This is why some are involved in marital infidelity or some type of sexual impropriety because They have this longing for fulfillment. This is why some view self-help books as if they were the inspired word of God. There are some people, that the the way that you and I sit and, and listen to Pastor Sam, there are some people who listen to Dr. Phil that way. He speaks and they listen and receive what he is saying as if he is speaking for God himself. Because he is able to scratch an itch that they have deep inside, right? This is why some use and abuse pills, pipes, or plants. I've got this longing for fulfillment. I've got this deep need. I've got this craving, and and I, I, I will go anywhere. I will try anything to solve it. That's the quest. Understand, as it relates to the believer, that is so very grievous to Christ. You know why? 
Because he says, you already are completely fulfilled. You're completely filled. What are you searching for? What are you looking for? You have it. These people are like the person frantically turning their house upside down, flipping over seat cushions, looking under the cracks and corners of their house looking for their keys. You done that? I mean, you're just, you're in a frenzy. And you're looking and looking and looking, and all of a sudden you hear this noise and you go, oh, they're in my hand. (laughs) The whole time. It's in your hand. It's in your hand the whole time. It's in your hand. You're, you're, you're looking everywhere, and you're turning over the seat cushions of life, and you're looking in the corners of life, and you're trying this, and you're trying that, the whole time carrying it right here in your hand. God has given it to you. So in Christ, you are completely filled, but it's so much more important For that to not just be head knowledge, as Alan Shelby has said, it's got to get 18 inches deeper. It's got to get here. And so, consider what Jesus says. John 6.35 And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Bread or food is Essential, it's necessary for physical living, is it not? What Jesus is saying is everything that a human being could ever possibly want or need, I am it. I'm the bread of life. I am the one who is essential, most essential, ultimately necessary for life. It's me. It's not someone else or something else. It's me. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. My goodness, there are a lot of hungry and thirsty believers. Someone's lying. John 10.10 The thief cometh not. But for to steal and to kill and to destroy, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more. Say it with me. Abundantly. How's your life? Is it abundant? Are you abundantly living? Oh, man, I'm just trying to get through this. Man, life is just, oh, it's just so rough. And I just, every time I turn around, there's this and there's that. And I I just, man, it just, nothing's working. and, And it's just... Life is all uphill. It's just a grind. There's no joy. There's no victory. There's no excitement. There's no peace. It's just drudgery. Every day. Is that, let me see, did he, uh, and that they might have it more drudgery? Miserably? What did he say in John 15, 11? These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ 
to the believer saying, I don't want you to have some joy, a little joy. I want you to be full of it. Full. Full. Now, I'm getting ready to say something that has been rejected, challenged, and this will be no different. You should know it is based on what we read in Colossians 2 verse 10 and what we read in, in, in the verses from, from John. Understand this. Unfulfilled believers consistently choose to be unfulfilled. Oh, no, 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 bro. You, <laughs> see, you need to go back to school. Uh, you need to study a little harder. Uh, believe me, I put hours into this. I'm not boasting. I'm just saying I didn't wake up this morning and write this down. Uh, I have spent hours with the Lord getting this message. Um, it, it, it's true, y'all. Did I say y'all? I, ne- I never say y'all. <laughs> I, I've been around Sam and these guys. They say y'all sometimes. I'm not a y'all guy. One of the reasons this is so hard to accept is because we live in a society of victims. Everybody's a victim. Everybody's a victim. So if I'm unfulfilled and miserable in my life, it's not because of me. It's not because of the choices or the choice that I've made. No, 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 no. It's because of what someone has done to me or what someone is doing to me or some circumstance or some event Outside of my control, that's why I'm unfulfilled, angry, miserable, sour, cantankerous, depressed, negative. That's why I murmur all the time. That's why I'm so difficult to be around and live with. It's because of them or that. That's our society. And I wish I could tell you that that stopped at the doorstep of the church, not the case. So to accept that my unfulfillment is of my own doing, guess what? It's unacceptable. I watch TV and and TV tells me that somebody did something to me. Something happened to me. We all choose to believe what we want to believe, but if you do find it unacceptable, that unfulfillment is not the believer's choosing, then what do we do with Colossians 2.10? What do we do with that? Because that says, in Christ, we are completely filled. You're saying you're unfulfilled. What do we do with that? Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. You come to me, you will never hunger or thirst but you are continually thirsty and hungry for stuff. You still have all these longings. Jesus said, I came that you would have life and that you have it more abundantly. The life that you're living is absolutely miserable. What do we do with that? Jesus says, I don't want you to have joy. I want want you to be full of it. You're down 
all the time. You're down and depressed and miserable all the time. Every day your lip is dragging on the floor. What do we do with that? I really, what do we do with that? Someone's lying. You know, if I were a betting man, I, I'd say this is right. I'm begging you in love. I'm giving you my heart, guys, in love, please. If unfulfillment is not the choice of the believer, Jesus is a liar. If you're saying, as a believer, if you're saying, Lord, nah, I'm sorry, I, I just can't, so, nope, if, if this or that or whatever it might be, what you're saying is, this isn't true. This says you are complete in Him. Completely filled. You're saying, actually, Lord, I'm incomplete. And here's why. In 1907, a woman by the name of Ida Wood moved into a two-room suite at the Herald Square Hotel in New York. The manager said that she always paid her bills in cash every month and paid them on time. He also said that the, the housekeeper that kept that floor had to persuade Ida and her daughter and her sister. She was only able to do it twice. She had to persuade them to open the door just a little bit so she could exchange the linen and the towels. And she said even then it was just a little crack where they would make the exchange only twice. The bellhop would knock on the door once a week to ask if the family needed anything and According to his words, it was always the same thing every time. Evaporated milk, crackers, coffee, bacon, and eggs, which were cooked in a makeshift kitchenette in the bathroom. Each time, Ida would tip the bellhop 10 cents, and she would always tell him that money was the last thing that she had. She and her family had no intentions of renewing contact with the outside world, they had shut themselves in and shut themselves out, shut themselves off from humanity, except the three of them. But all that changed on March the 5th of 1931, on that day at 4 o'clock, at the age of 93, Ida Wood did something that she had not done in 24 years. She opened the door and she put her neck out and looked down the hall and cried out for help. Why? Because her sister lay sick and was dying. At that time, Ida Wood was five feet tall and it's described that her body looked like a question mark. She weighed 70 pounds and was practically deaf. Despite poor health and not bathing for years. 
Her complexion was described as creamy and pink and unwrinkled. So as the undertaker was there and transporting the body of her deceased sister, Ida Bell began rambling that she was at one point in her life a southern belle and a New York socialite. She said that her husband used to be a congressman and that her brother-in-law was once the mayor of New York. But as the people in the room heard all this, they looked around and couldn't help but question the validity of it because they looked around and all they saw was squalor. So they just chalked it up to, oh, this is just an old 93-year-old senile woman. They could have not been more wrong. She had, in fact, been a southern belle, and she was also the widow of Benjamin Wood former congressman from New York and publisher of the New York Daily News. And in 1901, after he had passed, she sold the New York Daily News for $300,000. You can imagine how much money that was in 1901. And in 1907, anticipating the financial panic, she closed her bank account and walked out of her bank with nearly $1 million. Upon searching her suite, inside they found a shoebox. In that shoebox they found $247,200 in cash. They thought that was it until the following day a nurse found an oilcloth pocket and Ida's dress as she slept inside that pocket was $500,000 in cash. Next, they examined 54 of her trunks. Some of them were stored in the basement of the hotel, others in an uptown New York warehouse. Inside lay bolts of the finest lace from Ireland, Venice and Spain, armfuls of exquisite gowns, necklaces, watches, bracelets, and other gem-encrusted pieces, several $1,000, gold certificates dating back to the 1860s. And in an old, stale box of crackers, they found a diamond necklace worth $40,000. But money was the last thing she said she had. That proved to be a colossal lie. You say, where are you going with that? Here's where I'm going with this. And this is your meditation homework. I really want you to think about this question. I really want you to meditate on it this week. I want you to meet with God over this question. It's in your notes. What are you claiming about yourself? That upon further investigation of God's word says you are lying. Ida Wood said, I don't have any money. Was that a lie? It's a fat lie, as we would say in our vernacular. A big fat one. Okay. Many believers are doing just that. 
I, 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 I can't stop drinking. Truth or lie? That's a lie. I, 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 I can't stop. Fill in your blank. I, I, I can't help but be depressed. I, I, I can't help but be angry. I, 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 I can't help but... We can go on and on and on, except this says, liar. I can't think on these things, liar. I can't have the joy of the Lord. I can't rejoice all way. And again, I say rejoice. I, I, I can't do that. Liar. I can't be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Liar. I, 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 I can't stop being in debt. Liar. Shall I continue? What is your life saying that upon further investigation of the word of God says you're lying? Lord, your word is always true. Help us to reckon it so in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.